Today, Rinpoche again explained that merely emptying the mind of thought is not meditation on emptiness. It requires conceptual thought and analysis to arrive at an inferential valid cognition of emptiness that will be converted into direct prime cognition at the path of seeing. So welcome everyone to the Chen Rezig Tibetan Buddhist Center. Once again, Rinpoche is going to be explaining Lama Tsongkhapa's great treatise on the stages of the path to enlightenment. Um, and this text is a summary of all of Lord Buddha's teachings. So we, we say that the Lord Buddha um, has specific teachings that he gave, and those are called the pronouncements of Lord Buddha, and they fall under a category in Sanskrit that's called Kangjur. And these are the actual pronouncements of Lord Buddha. These are the teachings that Buddha gave that are then have been written down and made into uh, various volumes. So in Tibetan, we have a hundred volumes of the Lord Buddha's pronouncements. And then there are 213 authentic Indian commentaries, which are also considered, considered authoritative, and they comment on those 100 sutras. Uh, so um, it is said that between the Kangjur and the Tanjur, um, you could say that all of the teachings that Buddha ever gave um, are presented and clarified. Um, but even with that clarification, it's very difficult to understand even the, the commentaries. And forget trying to read the direct sutras. The direct sutras are almost encoded, if you will. Um, and then the commentaries clarify them, but really it requires someone to be a scholar to really even read the commentaries. So what uh, the great treatise on the stage of the path to enlightenment has done and other texts like it that are called the Lam Rim texts or stages of the path texts is summarize all of that material into categories and then shows in those categories shows show a practitioner how he or she would go from literally knowing nothing of Buddhism to becoming enlightened and in what order the graduated stages that would be necessary to accomplish that goal. So Lord Atisha, um, an Indian pandit, uh, originally identified these three categories that you could summarize the teachings into. Um, and then Lama Tsongkhapa, the Tibetan master uh, that wrote the book that we're reading, kind of expanded on Lord Atisha's explanation of those three categories. Um, so the three categories are as follows. So the Buddha taught teachings that would allow one to stay within cyclic existence but achieve higher realm rebirth within that cyclic existence. So this is the first category of teachings that uh, we consider um, Buddha's teachings and they're called the teachings shared in common with beings of small capacity. And these are for practitioners who wish to be free from the lower realms of cyclic existence and achieve higher realm rebirth. So they definitely wish to emerge from the lower realm. So they have uh, what you would call a um, kind of a 
similar um, realization to renunciation in that they have a renunciation related to the lower realms of cyclic existence and then they practice certain things to be able to achieve that goal which is to free themselves from the lower realms and re have rebirth in the higher realms. So this type of practitioner is called the small capacity practitioner and he or she goes for refuge to the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, engages in ethical behavior that abandons the ten non-virtuous activities, and then acknowledges any downfalls that he or she is engaged in. Um, so in dependence upon these practices, um, he or she would be able to achieve higher realm rebirth. Uh, so this is the first category of teachings. The next category of teachings is called the teachings shared in common with beings of medium capacity, and these are teachings for beings who wish to achieve nirvana, uh, wish to be free from cyclic existence altogether, whether it be higher realm or lower realm. This practitioner recognizes the downfalls of all of it, wishes to be free from all of it, and then engages in what's called the three highest higher trainings, the highest higher training in ethics, concentration, and wisdom. And independence upon these three highest higher trainings, coupled with the previously explained teachings within the small scope, one is able to achieve nirvana or a cessation of all of cyclic existence. But he or she at that point still has obstructions to omniscience and is not a Buddha. Even though they are a uh, Hinayana foe destroyer or an Arhat in the lesser vehicle, they still have obstructions to omniscience even though they do not dwell within cyclic existence, they're still imprisoned by imprints of those afflictions. And the imprisonment is not being all-knowing. So being in a prison of ignorance still to some small degree. And that ignorance is related to all phenomena and related to your ability, one's ability to truly be of benefit to all sentient beings. Um, so the final category of teachings is for that practitioner who wishes to get rid of all of the imprints and, and as well as the obstructions. And that practitioner engages in what's called the teachings shared in the teachings for beings of great capacity. And this practitioner engages in the practices already mentioned and the teachings shared in common with beings of small capacity and the teachings shared in common with beings of medium capacity and then from that platform of renunciation of the desire to emerge from cyclic existence generates bodhicitta the mind that aspires to enlightenment and then from that mind because bodhi means bodhicitta means buddha mind so from that state of mind that wishes to become a Buddha and only day and night is only thinking of being a Buddha, one practices the six perfections to enable him or her to more, move more swiftly to that goal. Um, so these are the teachings for beings of great capacity and they allow a practitioner to become a Buddha. So the first category of teachings shared in common with beings of small capacity allow one to achieve higher realm rebirth within cyclic existence. The next category, the teachings shared in common with beings of medium capacity, allow the practitioner to be free from cyclic existence altogether, but still have imprints of their afflictions. So even though they're in nirvana, they still aren't Buddhas. The final category is for beings who wish to become Buddhas. And these are the teachings for beings of great capacity. Deisan Rinpoche. Papa, Sit in your bed, Timetan, Tijaniki, and Dunji Tower, 
ਰਾਤ ਨੇ ਬੰਦਲਾ ਚਬੂ ਤਾਂ ਬਲਾ ਤੇਂ ਬਾਤਾਂ ਆ ਮਾਦੋ ਤੇਬਾ 
，毛主席推保永祖这话呢，最近最近三把刀，最近三把刀，他总给初中五人爸爸来送吧，他拿了担保了，担担保了担呢。大面把你都被打啊！你把拿他做，他做工吧，下午。我那工吧，下午，那他做，他做，这些月娘呢，奶奶，啥准备？他做。Cicilin indicate low, then it's yeah, yeah. Then uh, start to be a lot of now. Ready, ready. Tell our mother, Jay, so that you did your mobile shy. Hadon to chill to my you know. The Hadon also do by the number Jetan number soon tea number two. The Hadon go much go. 那把那把人呢？我认了说明，我认了说说明那把结巴说有，那把结巴呢？那把结巴呢？今年不拉没把握，然后那把结巴呢？接到完了没把握，当不拉。用手多把刀，用手就把你越拉，你把来要多把刀就把你越的，从二把刀插鱼，拿不来就把我，在太阳，你啥刀你啥来，他拉拉住那把就刚些拿，得拉个龙，得打，得打拿。那那那那三个，现在那三个，去哪了？哪不能接班长？热度哪不能接班？接班谁班长？用手多不能谁班长？用手绝不能谁把握？得了，这这这这咋了？哪不能接班？接班谁接呢？接班哪把用语？没班长，隔壁没班长，有木哪把用语？没班。没把打了，今天是月吧？你去，那不能接吧？写多，这这这打哇，这打哇人，月吧？你去呢？热度那不能接吧？写吧，一诺，写了当天币，写了当天币，天币写写吧了，那不都把当接吧？吃完钱吧，吃完钱吧，写吧，得吃哪呢？用手多把写把印咯，然后打吧，然后打吧多把写吧，然后打吧写吧多把写吧，写笔这这哪呢？用手多把写吧，多把写多，写说根据来讲，他从他从个狼了，写不，写写不，他从个狼了，写不得得松心，写不得松心。这些些买阿多，些些买阿多呀，得到给，我这，你啥打的
ਸੋ ਸੋ ਨਾਬਾ ਸੋਇਆ ਦੋ ਦੋ ਗੋਂਡੇ ਲੈ ਕਿਉਂ ਦੇ ਦੇ ਹਤੋਂ ਚਿਸ਼ਨੇ ਦੇ ਦੇ ਦਸਕਾ ਦੇ ਨਜੀਕੇ ਦੇ ਨੇ ਦੇ ਲੋਂਗ ਕੰਗਿਸਨ ਅਗਾਤਸੂ ਹਾਕੋਗੂਦੂ ਦੇ ਲੋਂਗ ਯਾ ਗੁਟਸੋ ਓਕੇ ਸੋ ਅਮ I just asked Rinpoche to pause and we'll get up to where he is in the English and then um, go from there. Um, okay, so we are on page 324 where it says the noble Nagarjuna. The noble Nagarjuna and his successors taught that Hinayana and Mahayana are alike in their views of the definitive meaning. So the point that it's going to be made here is that whether you want to achieve Buddhahood or just Nirvana, either way you have to identify the correct nature of reality uh, whether you're aiming to just remove the afflictive obstructions which is what happens to a hinayana foe destroyer that allows him or her to achieve nirvana to achieve freedom from cyclic existence or you wish to not only remove the afflictive obstructions but their imprints as well which are called the obstructions to omniscience um, and become a buddha either way whichever goal one wishes to have the understanding of the nature of reality is necessary and that's why it states that once you understand the emptiness of one you understand the emptiness of all um so that there is this idea in some of the lower schools that you can have a kind of a somewhat understanding of some things emptiness and that will allow you to become an arya um when that is not correct um according to all of the schools uh according to the final school um anyone within hinayana or mahayana that has a direct realization of emptiness an accurate one has seen the emptiness of all phenomena and isn't only seeing emptiness of self um so uh there's an argument that takes place but the higher school feels that um w- um once you see the emptiness of one object then you understand and apply that meaning to all objects and there isn't just a partial understanding that makes you a superior um so uh, so the noble nagarjuna and his successors taught that hinayana and mahayana are alike in their views of the definitive meaning this implies two marvelous certainties after you have developed certainty that there is no way to attain even mere freedom from cyclic existence let alone buddhahood so here are the two divisions uh two two divisions of enlightenment uh an enlightenment of a hinayanist uh which is nirvana an individual liberation which is free from cyclic existence and it says let alone buddhahood or the higher enlightenment which is complete removal of all imprints and obstructions which is buddhahood um and that's the mahayana enlightenment um so here it's saying whether you want either of these two kinds of enlightenment uh it's necessary to understand reality without the view that knows that all phenomena lack intrinsic existence you find the stainless view by making great effort at many methods so here it's saying that uh, whether you want to be a hinayana foe destroyer or a buddha it's necessary to know that all phenomena lack intrinsic existence not just self of person it's necessary to know that all phenomena lack intrinsic existence so here this is negating the idea that some of the lower schools have that just by understanding the lack of self of persons one can become a foe destroyer if that means to them that by doing so they understand all phenomena is empty then that's correct but believing that some singular somewhat of the full view of of reality 
um, allows you to have a partial kind of nirvana of the Hinayanist is incorrect. You have the um, emptiness that is understood is the same emptiness that a Hinayanist understands and that a Mahayanist understands. The same nature of reality. There's no difference in the nature of reality except the, there's still self-cherishing attitude that the Hinayanist has lingering whereas the Mahayanist doesn't have that. But in terms of how they believe this book is here, it's the same, whether a Hinayanist or Mahayanist. So that's what it's saying here, that both of them need that view and the exact same view in order to achieve their individual goals. Um, without the view that knows that all phenomena lack intrinsic existence, you find the stainless view by making great effort at many methods. After you have developed certainty from the very depths of your heart that the Features that differentiate Mahayana from Hinayana are the precious spirit of enlightenment and the sublime bodhisattva activities. You accept the teachings on the behavioral aspects of the practice as the most intimate advice. After you have taken the vows of a conqueror's child, the bodhisattva, you train in those activities. Here I say, going to that most beautiful mountain, the lord of mountains called Vulture Peak, shaking the universe in six directions and magically filling a hundred pure lands with light, the sage gave forth from his magnificent throat the great mother from whom all noble children are born, the uncomparably eloquent perfection of wisdom, the heart of both sutra and mantra paths. Um, so this is talking about Vulture Peak in Rajagriya when the Buddha taught um, the uh, Heart Sutra. Um, and when the Buddha taught the Heart Sutra, that's the second turning of the wheel of Dharma where he expressed the Madhyamika view. Simultaneously taught Kala Chakra Tantric view in another place. Um, so it, it um, so that was taking place simultaneously. So when they make reference to Tantrayana sometimes, those who know it, know about it, understand that it refers to that simultaneous teaching that went on of Kala Chakra and the Heart Sutra. Um, the sage gave forth from his magnificent throat the great mother from whom all noble children are born, the incomparable eloquent perfection of wisdom, the heart of both sutra and mantra paths. Nagarjuna, the hero who had been prophesied, gave a precise commentary on it in the best of all treatises. That uncomparable explanation, as famous as the sun, known as the magnificent fundamental treatise, the treatise by the conqueror's child, Buddha Palita, explains it well, and what he explained well was well understood by Chandrakirti, whose fine treatise comments on it extensively, clarifying its words and its meaning. Rinpoche, every first Wednesday of the month, teaches this text that's mentioned here uh, that says, was well understood by Chandrakirti, whose fine treatise comments on it extensively, clarifying its words and its meaning. That's referring to the entrance to the middle way that we study uh, first Wednesday of every month uh, by Chandrakirti. Using words that are easy to understand, I have explained them, their stainless system, how it is that dependently arisen objects and agents of cyclic existence and nirvana are possible, among things that, like illusions, lack intrinsic existence. My friends who study the profound Madhyamaka texts, although it is hard for you to posit the pendant arising of cause and effect without the absence of intrinsic existence, it's better to take the approach of saying, such is the Madhyamaka system, otherwise you will not be able to escape the fallacies that you have stated to others and will find yourself drawn to a non-system. In that case, you must continue to study. The treatises of the noble Nagarjuna and his followers give good explanations of the way to search out the correct view and are for the sake of the conqueror's teaching remaining for a long time. 
Okay, so chapter 25, insight requires analysis. Classifications of insight. Kamala Shila's second stages of meditation sets forth three requisites for insight. Reliance on an excellent being, genuinely pursuing extensive study of explanations of reality, and appropriate reflection. By relying upon these three, you will discover the view, the understanding of the two selflessnesses, then cultivate insight. What insight should be you cultivate? Here our immediate and primary concern is not the insights of the elevated stages. We are mainly setting forth the insights that you cultivate while you are an ordinary being. For an ordinary being, complete insight is the cultivation of the fourfold, the threefold, and the sixfold insight. The fourfold insight refers to the differentiation and so forth as stated in the sutra unraveling the intended meaning. Differentiation observes the diversity of conventional phenomena. Full differentiation observes the real nature of phenomena. The first differentiation is of two types, thorough examination and thorough analysis. And the second, full differentiation is of two types, examination and analysis. Examination and analysis are distinguished according to whether the object is coarse or subtle. Asanga Shravaka level says, what is the fourfold insight? It is thus, using the serenity within his mind, a monk differentiates, fully differentiates, fully examines, and fully analyzes phenomena. How does he differentiate? He differentiates by way of their diversity, the objects of meditation that purify analysis, the object of the meditation of the learned, the object of meditation that purify the afflictions. He fully differentiates through analyzing the real nature of those three objects of three types of object. Full examination occurs when he uses conceptual attention endowed with those two kinds of wisdom to apprehend the distinguishing signs that of those three types of object. When he analyzes them correctly, it is full analysis. The same four paths of insight are set forth in Asanga's compendium of knowledge. The identification of them in Rat Ratna Karasanti's uh, instructions for the pe perfection of wisdom also agrees with the Shravaka levels. Regarding the threefold insight, the sutra unraveling the intended meaning says. Okay, Disa. Yanda Bardopi, Sheso, the Gunle du Lejang. Gunle du Lejang. The Sheso, okay, Nay Ras. Sheso, Gunle du Lejang. The name not to the long year, Okay. Gulle du Lejang, Latungi, Latungi Lola, Jibut Rason, Shimanadon. ตะดาเกงวนดิเนสะตะรสงโซสงโซนาบะสงยาโดดกงเดเลชวนเดนเดฮาตุฮาตุลาโตมะโตเชเชนาเชโตมะโตเชชังบานาบะสงเดชะม
लेबर Tata 
So when we look at the differentiation between what um, calm abiding and special insight is, uh, Rimche gave a specific definition really fast, and I, but I think I know where it is. So just bear with me one moment. Um, I believe the same definition is used, the etymology 67. Okay, it should be right there. Okay, so this definition of calm abiding is a stabilization arisen from meditation conjoined with special pliancy. Um, so uh, the special pliancy is referring to uh, mental and physical pliancy that takes place once you achieve this single-pointed concentration. It's a, a bliss of mind and body that it allows one to uh, be very comfort. It's a very comfortable place. Um, a blissful place uh, and and physically you can uh, and mentally it allows you to sit for very long periods of time um, I think it's said in a text that once you achieve a single pointed concentration or calm abiding you can rest with one object um, I think it says the size of a mustard seed like the object of Buddha the size of a mustard seed for four hours without moving to any other object of observation so you would sit in meditation on this one object for four hours, is what I read, um, without wavering, without thinking, what time is it? Or where, you know, what do I need to do? Or no other thought uh, conceptually other than the, the um, grabbing of that, that one object. Um, so calm abiding um, it is, again, um, a stabilization arisen from meditation and conjoined with a special pliancy. And then it says etymologically, um, so sometimes that helps, calm abiding is called shine in Tibetan. Um, it's a, sh, the, the, the ne refers to abiding, to staying somewhere, to staying uh, on something. Um, and the shi is shiwa, meaning peaceful. Um, so a peaceful staying in one place peacefully. Uh, if you look at the words literally, it's staying one place, staying there peacefully, um, is the etymology of the Tibetan word shine. Um, um, and it's an ob on an uh, internal object of observation uh, a and, uh, upon calming all distraction from the outside. So it clarifies that 
this calm abiding isn't something that you're seeing. It's an internal object of observation that you're able to hold on to without any kind of distraction whatsoever. And once you achieve this stage, appliancy takes place of mind and body. Um, so that's the definition of, of calm abiding. Now the definition of special insight is a, a wisdom that's arisen from a direct perception. So special insight necessarily uh, refers to something... Um, here, I'll show you. Um, Okay, so the difference um, upon the special insight is the object of observation that the calm abiding apprehends. Um, so when we say special insight, uh, it's referring to a specific object of observation of that calm abiding being apprehended, and it's referring to the nature of reality, and that's achieved through analysis. Um, so you're then combining an analysis um, and uniting it with calm abiding. So analysis is conceptuality, so that is not calm abiding. Calm abiding requires no conceptuality. So somehow you're uniting this wisdom that you've analyzed and know with this calm abiding and that is special insight. I'm going to just read a little bit about the etymology here. Uh, just as a note, um, Jeffrey Hopkins uses Penchin Sun Andrapa's texts most of the time um, as well as Jamyan Sheba, but in this particular text, I see a lot of reference to Penchen Sun Andrapa's text. And those, Penchen Sun Andrapa is the textbook writer for Drepung Losaling, um, as well as one of the Ganden, I think, Shartse. The, the Penchen Sun Andrapa, the Ganden Shartse, Shantse? Shartse. So Ganden Shartse and Losaling both use Penchen Sun Andrapa. And that's where Rinpoche is pulling all of the definitions you always hear him give are from the textbooks of the monastery. Um, so the, when you look at this text, a lot of this text is written utilizing the same source material. So when you see me refer to it, it's just because I'm not a Geshe and haven't memorized the definition of everything that exists as they have um, and need it as a reference point. So it's, this book is a great reference point, although it was written a long time ago. So we've moved a little forward with some of our language use since then. But this is a really a great book. Um, I remember Roy called it like the Bible, he called it, um, for translators. So uh, what it says about um, um, etym etymologically, special insight means sight. It's the tong. So shine uh, is uh, calm abiding. Shi meaning peace. Ne meaning abiding, staying. So staying in peace. Then hla tong. Uh, tong means sight. And hlapa means exceeding that, so exceeding the sight. 
So meaning, what that just means is that um, your seeing or your object is the highest object. It's the, um, I'll read more. Because a clarity is afforded through analysis different from the non-analysis during calm abiding. The arising of clarity upon repeated thought and analysis with regard to either a true or false object is a fact of dependent arising. For if rather than just remaining in stabilizing meditation after achieving calm abiding, one performs analytical meditation, one is able to induce a firm meditative stabilization and a powerful wisdom consciousness that act as powerful antidotes overcoming afflictions. Um, so since both pliancy and calm abiding of a one-pointed mind are induced by the power of analysis, the special insight, which is a thorough discrimination of phenomena, and the calm abiding, which is one-pointedness of mind, operate in parallel at the same time with equal power. So when they say there's a union of calm abiding and special insight, that's what they're talking about. They're saying that there's a unit, unit somehow calm abiding, which hasn't had, isn't discriminating anything. It's just fixating on something, is then fixating on something which wasn't previously fixated on. It was moved. It was analyzed. So you were thinking about all these different things. Now somehow these two are united and that understanding of the nature of reality is the single focus. Somehow or another. I don't have this. So an experience can only be explained the way it's being explained until you have it. Um, but um, so, th so that's what the point of it is. Um, hence, this is a union of special insight and calm abiding. Within stabilization, one is capable of strong analysis, which in turn induces even greater stabilization. So you're working the two with each other um, and strengthening your understanding by harnessing it. Um, and your harnessing is strengthening because it's harnessing the nature of reality. Um, so it's, it's zoning in on something which is the most accurate object of observation, something like that. This is a big book. I'm not going to keep reading. but um, So the, the definition um, of, of, the, of the special insight is this, um, this wisdom that has arisen from uh, the, the, the calm abiding, if you will, the special pliancy that's created and a wisdom that's arisen from that special pliancy and, and single-pointed harnessing. Um, so, Shibashu Shibashu 
Kanzaki, Shebe Chunana, 
Shirov 
tombo sacanto sacanto ya chama jo banze bana chama jo banze bana dopembe dopembe langol dopembe langol ne zimba tanda dawa te te shiba shi na ne je chama zimbe yuda Mutuana <coughs> Kebi Kebi Tata <coughs> 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 Sanzuma Sentro you Sanzun 
quicker my first reputation how to cultivate it you see where we left off we left off 773.34 finishes it in one second um, so just real quickly um, the definition I found the the pure definition of special insight um, it's a wisdom of thorough discrimination of phenomena conjoined with special in pliancy induced by the power of analysis Rimbache, the shine dan laton, the laton shine yin gu. Laton shine yin gewa. Gewa. Laton yin shiro gu. Shine yin tinga di. The ne the the shira the shine lena the lu sen sen shijang lu dan senjang yere. Shijang chaba jin shibu gu na. ラウルのベベンランドジョビティンガンジンテシネンセニレスレッサーシンジャンチャバジンソンゴンジョンのカンソンレデュレゾブチロンサバジレンゴレッサーテルシンジャンラウレオテセンキブンゴレッサーレネ
um, that they aren't related, that one isn't a basis for the other. Um, so what I was trying to find out is that pliancy that takes place, is it the same pliancy that occurs from the um, calm abiding? Because calm abiding's definition is that it's a, a physical and mental pliancy that occurs from this single pointed concentrate. Uh, concentration, so it's a qualifier. So it sounds like that it's different, um, but it's a, a special occurrence that happens through analysis of this pliancy. Um, but whether or not it it first you have calm abiding, and then you can get special insight, whether it's an order of events is a debatable. Um, uh, so they are they are though. Everyone concurs that they're mutually exclusive, because. Calm abiding is specifically looking at one thing. Special insight is analysis. So when you look at, again, the definition of special insight, it's a wisdom of thorough discrimination of phenomena conjoined with special, special pliancy induced by the power of analysis. And then there's a note here, 47. Let's see if it's easy to find. No, maybe, hold on. Oh, it doesn't help. Okay, so uh, now, where were we when we left off in the text? Did somebody, I just have to read to where we were, sorry. Uh, first, I think that we read to, it was a second quote, I know where we are, regarding page 328, the second quote. Regarding the threefold insight, the Sutra Unraveling Intended Meaning says, Bhagavan, how many types of insight are there? Maitreya, there are three types. That which arises from sign, that which arises from thorough searching, and that which arises from analytical discrimination. What is insight which arises from signs? It is the insight that attends only to conceptual image within the sphere of concentration. What is the insight which arises from thorough searching? It is insight that attends to features which are not well understood by previous wisdom consciousnesses bearing upon the given object, so that those features may well be understood. What is insight which arises from analytical discrimination? It is insight that attends to features that were well understood by earlier wisdom consciousnesses bearing upon the given object, so that you feel the genuine bliss of liberation. Regarding this, uh, Sangha's Shravaka level says that those at the stage of equipoise may attend to a teaching they have studied and memorized or to a personal instructions. This attention, but it is not cont contemplation, nor is it consideration, evaluation, or examination. It is involved only in the signs. As you move from contemplation through to uh, examination, you are engaged in thorough searching to have exact analytical discrimination of what ha has been thus determined constitutes engaging in analytical discrimination of that for which you have thoroughly searched. Those three are the three doors of insight. To summarize, the first you might, for example, observe the meaning of selflessness and attend to its signs, but you do not much come to a conclusion. In the second, you come to a conclusion in order to determine that you have not previously determined. In the third, you analyze as before a meaning that you have already determined. The six-fold insight refers to the observation of six bases. It is a search procedure for the highest for the insight of thorough searching. You thoroughly search for and after you have sought analytically discriminate 
And after you have sought analytically discriminate, meanings, things, characteristics, categories, times, and reasonings. Searching for meanings refers to seeking the meanings of a given term. Searching for things refers to seeking to determine whether something is an internal thing or an external thing. Searching for characteristics is of two types. Seeking to determine whether something is in general characteristic or a specific characteristic and seeking to determine whether a characteristic is shared or unique. All of these are very specific debate terms. So if you're lost, um, you should be unless you've studied debate because um, these are all categories of phenomena that they're putting forth and how they divide phenomena in debate and classify it according to Abhidharma. So again, this section is assuming the reader knows all of this because it's being taught to Geshe level that what we're reading, the most final section of this text, is being written to the highest scholars of scholars. So just always realize that when you're reading this, that these are very specific terms um, and identifications that are being put forth here. Um, and they aren't just words that don't make sense to a reader that has studied these classifications. Um, so they make perfect sense to someone who studied classifications. Um, and you'll see it if you look at the beginning of Meditation on Emptiness, they go through all of the different categories which uh, are subjects of knowledge that are kind of presupposed. Um, so it's interesting to look at that and see how difficult the material we're really grasping at is. Um, uh, so searching for categories uh, is seeking to determine what is the neg negative category based on its fault. Um, I don't know where I left off. Let me just reread. Is that where I was? Yeah is to determine what is the negative category based on its faults and, and defects and seeking to determine what is in the positive category based on its qualities and benefits. Searching for times is seeking to determine how something could have occurred in the past, how it could occur in the future, and how it might be occurring in the present. Searching for reasoning is of four types. The reasoning of dependence is that effects arise in dependence on causes and conditions. You search for the distinctive uh, perspectives of the conventional, the ultimate, and their basis. The reasoning of performance of function is that phenomena perform their own functions, as in the case of fire performing the function of burning. You search thinking this is the phenomenon, this is the function, this phenomenon performs this function. The reason of tenable proof is that something is proven without being contradicted by valid knowledge. You search thinking, is this supported by any of those three forms of valid cognition, perception, inference, and reliable scripture. The reasoning of reality gives you confidence in the reality of things as known in the world, e.g. the reality that fire is hot and water is wet. Or confidence about inconceivable realities or confidence about the abiding reality does not consider any further reason as to why these things are that way. A yogi's understanding um, of the six just presented is of three types. The meaning of terms expressed, the diversity of objects of knowledge, and the actual nature of objects of knowledge. The first of the six kinds of searching, searching for meanings, falls within the first type. The meaning of the terms expressed, searching for things and searching for specific characteristics, fall within the second type of diversity of objects of knowledge. Searching for general characteristics and searching for the remaining three of those, six fall within the third type, the actual nature of objects of knowledge. 
The Asanga Shravaka level says, This is the observation of the three doors of insight and the six categories within the basis. In brief, these fully encompass all types of insight. This means that those are explained there in the Shravaka levels encompass all types of insight. Furthermore, the doorways to the four insights that we explained first are the three types of insight. That which has arisen from just the signs, it is said that you enter them from searching within the six ways of searching for the point of view of those three doorways. So it seems that the three doorways and the six ways of searching are included within the previous fourfold division. Asanga's Shravaka level states that the attention of tight focus, etc., a set of four explained above, are common to both serenity and insight. Hence, insight also has four attentions. Therefore, Ratnakarasanti's instructions for the perfection of wisdom says, thus completing the cultivation of fourfold insight frees you from the bondage of rebirth in the miserable realms. Completing the cultivation of the ninefold serenity frees you from the bondage of signs. There are a great many texts that say the same thing. Hence, an insight is cultivated via the four, differentiation, and so forth, as they are indicated in the sutra unraveling the intended meaning. Serenity is cultivated via the nine states of mind which stabilize your attention without any discursive movement from object to object. How to cultivate insight. This section has two parts, the refutation of other systems and the refutation of our, and the presentation of our own system. This section has four parts. The first refutation of the opponent's position. One does not find any view, any understandable understanding of selflessness. Rather, one meditates on the meaning of how things exist by holding the mind in a state that lacks any thought. Uh, this is the Hashan view, by the way, the Chinese Abbot view. This is because the way that things exist, emptiness cannot be identified in terms of what it is or is not. Therefore, setting the mind in that way brings it into accordance with the way that things exist. Um, for with no object existing at all in the face of emptiness, the mind does not apprehend anything. Reply. Is it that these meditators for whom no objects exist at all first understand that objects do not exist, then must set their minds accordingly in a state of not apprehending anything at all? Or is it that they do not think that objects do not exist, but instead think that the object's ontological status can never be established, and so consider meditation on its ontological status to concur uh, to occur when you go into a state of suspension in which your mind does not apprehend anything at all? If it is the first, it contradicts your assertion that they do not find the view because you assert that the non-existence of everything is the definitive view. According to us, such a position falls to restrict the object that reasoning refutes. No matter what might be asserted, you regard it as contradicted by reason. You then take this to mean that there is nothing whatsoever that can be identified. Since this constitutes a view that mistakenly denies what, a fact, what in fact does exist, stabilizing your mind on such a view is not meditation on genuine emptiness, as I have explained at length above. If you analyze these phenomena using reasoning that analyzes the way that they exist, that reasoning will not establish the existence of any of these things and non-things. So perhaps considering the fact that phenomena are ultimately free from all elaborations, you are claiming that a person who is meditating does not know that, but rather stabilizes his or her mind in that way without identifying anything. And that, this way of meditating, accords with the lack 
of elaboration of phenomena, it is most absurd to claim that this is meditation on emptiness. For none of the sensory consciousness think, this is this, this is not this. Hence, they would also be meditations on the ontological status of phenomena because they would be in accord with the ontological status of their objects. As explained before, there are a great many absurd consequences of such a position, such as the consequences that the meditative serenity of non-Buddhists, in which there is no thought whatsoever, would be meditation on emptiness of everything. Furthermore, if you claim that it is enough to have some person other than the meditator recognize the concordance between the ontological status of the object and the way that the meditator's mind is set, then it would be impossible to avoid the consequence that non-Buddhists would meditate on emptiness. Uh, this is not the case. Uh, because here the persons first recognize the concordance of the two, then stabilize the mind. Um, so here, this is all talking about what is the object of negation. When you're looking at emptiness, what is emptiness? What, what is empty? What does that mean? What is an object empty of? Um, so are you negating um, everything? or are you negating its mode of being? So here this is saying that you have to identify first an object by valid cognition and then figure out what about that object is to be negated. So you have to first have an object to apprehend, to be able to apprehend that object's nature. Um, and that object, and that ob so you have to have an object um, and in order for you to identify its ultimate truth, it has to have a conventional truth. Um, so anyway, that's basically what is being asserted here. Um, and that complete removal of all thought and analysis does not get at what the object of negation actually is. Um, it still has some sort of um, grasping at self um, that's taking place um, it's just at a, at a, um, a different level, um, if you will. Um, so, so that's basically uh, what is the object of negation here is what this whole thing is, being talk, is talking about. And the, the view that's being presented is the view of Hashan that you just empty your mind and that no thinking is emptiness um, and that any kind of conceptual thought um, is basically your enemy. Um, uh, so you need to just remove all conceptual thought altogether. Um, and this system of Madhyamaka states that you have to start with conceptual thought to arrive at a non-conceptual thought about something. Um, so, uh, so it's saying that um, it's basically leading to just a nihilistic view of nothingness by just emptying your mind. If you believe that that's the true nature of things is nothing, um, then that if that is your object of of, of, of seeing, when you see emptiness, you're seeing nothing, then that would be a nihilistic view. Um, so you're seeing the uh, nothing that substantially exists of something, and that's the correct view, that there is a something, and that is its conventional nature. Um, uh, so this is not the case because here the person first recognizes the concordance of the two, then stabilizes the mind. Reply, since the recognition of such a concordance is the discovery of the view, this contradicts your assertion that one does not understand the view, but meditates on emptiness by simply stabilizing his or her mind without thinking of anything. 
Objection. All conceptual thoughts, no matter what one thinks about, bind one in cyclic existence. Therefore, setting the mind in a non-conceptual state of suspension is the liberating path. Reply. I've refuted this at length earlier. If this is your position, you should not attribute even the slightest fault to the system of Hashan. Uh, of Hashan. Kamala Sheila's third uh, stages of meditation says, and we're just about uh, to where Rinpoche read up to. Some say that virtuous and non-virtuous karma are produced by conceptions in your mind and that through this living being's experience results such as high status and cyclic existence and continue to revolve in cyclic existence. Those who think nothing and do nothing will fully will be fully liberated from cyclic existence. Therefore, they do not think about anything when they meditate, and they perform no virtuous deeds, such as deeds of generosity. They suppose that practices such as generosity are only taught for foolish beings, but those who say this entirely uh, abandon the Mahayana. The root of all the vehicles is the Mahayana. So if you abandon it, you abandon all vehicles. If you say that you should not think about anything, you abandon the wisdom which has the nature of correct analytical discrimination. The root of sublime wisdom that knows reality is correct analytical discrimination. If you abandon it, you sever the root and thus abandon the wisdom which passes beyond the world. By saying that one should not practice generosity and such, you utterly abandon methods such as generosity. In brief, wisdom and method are the Mahayana. As the foremost Gaya Sutra says, the path of the Bodhisattva in brief is twofold. What are the two? Method and wisdom. The Sutra of showing the Tathagata's inconceivable secret. All the paths of Bodhisattvas are included in these two, method and wisdom. Let me see where we are. Because of this, abandoning the Mahayana creates a great obstacle on the path. Therefore, they abandon the Mahayana. They do not minimal. They do minimal study. They consider their own view to be supreme. They do not respect the learned. They do not know the way taught in the Tathagata scriptures. After they have ruined themselves, they ruin others. Their words are contaminated by the poison of contradicting scripture and reason. The learned who seek what is good should leave them at a great distance like poisoned food. This refers to the position of Hashan. This passage clearly states, uh, sets forth how it completely abandons the Mahayana. And while it may be that it is what Hashan asserts, you yourself should recognize this position. Objection. We are not like that because we practice generosity. If it is the case that Hashan and you must be distinguished only in terms of practices such as deeds of generosity, then this indicates that you and Hashan are alike in meditating on the definitive view. Otherwise, it would be fitting that you also distinguish yourself from him on the issue of the concentration that does not think of anything at all. Furthermore, if all conceptual thoughts whatsoever bind one in cyclic existence, then do, not, then do you seek liberation from cyclic existence? If so, then as much as giving gifts and maintaining ethics must involve conceptual thought, what purpose is there in performing them? I have already explained this at point at length. Therefore, if you assert that all thoughts whatsoever serve to bind one in cyclic existence, then you might as well adopt the position of Hashan. One that takes your position will be saddled with a load of contradictions. Also, some who follow this line of thought entertain the following view. If one does much analysis of any object, that has been conceived to have signs of the two selves and thereby stops by grasping by the subject that apprehends such as the, an object. This is to eliminate elaborations from the outside, like a dog chasing after a ball. But to hold the mind without distraction from the outset is to eliminate all elaborations from within. By this very act, one prevents the mind from scattering to those objects in which signs would be apprehended, like a dog grabbing the ball right from the hand that is about to throw it. 
Hence, those who train in scriptures and reasonings that determine the view are devotees of mere conventional words. This vile misconception dispenses with the scriptures of the Buddha and within all the texts of the scholars, such as the six ornaments, for it is they who strive only to determine the import of the scripture and reason. Furthermore, after you carefully analyze how your mind conceives of signs of the two selves and what the object of ignorance is, like genuine scripture and reasoning must pulverize the deep falsehood of error, bringing about certainty that things do not exist as they are conceived by that ignorant mind. It may be that when you merely hold your mind without finding any such certainty, it does not scatter to objects such as the two selves, but this does not constitute an understanding of the meaning of the two selflessnesses. If it did, then it would most absurdly follow that even those who are falling asleep or passing out would understand selflessness because their minds do not scatter to those objects. For example, if you are frightened, wuthering wonder what wondering whether there is a demon in a strange cave at night, your fear is not dispelled until you light a lamp and carefully investigate whether it is there. There is, their position is, saying, is something like saying, hold the mind and do not allow it to move to the thought of a demon. Kamala Sheila's third stages of meditation says that what they say is like a cowardice of those who in a battle shut their eyes when they see a powerful enemy instead of behaving as heroic warriors who open their eyes and look well to see who the enemy is. Questions? Rinpoche, my question is about understanding um, not the condition of things which is dependently arisen, but the substance of things. To the, to understand great more more strongly the substance of uh, the nature of substance of form. Um, so in in science they talk about the substance of things, even atoms as being uh, an energy of some kind, <coughs> and this energy seems to have the the ability to exist as a form, but also to have the ability to act with other things as well. So it has an active principle and it has a passive principle of, of, of merely existing. Um, so my question is, um, what, what does Buddhism describe as the, the substance of form? And, and or is if collection of parts you're not going to get behind a collection of parts you will never there is no primordial ooze uh, that you will find as a final nature of things that Sampya school asserts that the, enu the enumerators the 20 holders of 25 um, Buddhism just asserts that there are collections of parts whether you what you call those parts um, is what science will determine they call all of those parts um, and those uh, parts have potential um, to combine with other parts to create something that you can name as this or that but them alone standing alone only have the potential to combine with other things Rinpoche. also could I say one other thing so it seems that if this might be correct that to think of things as being a composed of a substance might in and of itself have um, grasping at inherent existence uh, Rinpoche, the 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 Ripa, the Kelen, the Natsu, the Chukanga the the dudu mambo yure then a nyamdu then a tabure the 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 du 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 
shade of mambo yure, the ne nyamdu chana, the ne teb yure. The ne, the nampa, the dudu, the um, ngawanda drupa, the du, demba drupa, demba madrupa yin. Chutamche demba ma, demba, demba madrupa, ngahakogudu, yine chan lanjaro nang. The ne, the sen ripa, kelen, the chukanga, the du yure. Then du mambo nyamdu, shana, the ne teb yure. Mota yure, dobo yure. Then the do 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 mambo yure. The nampa gari kelen. Double do. Then the the dendel. The dendel dandar. Then the dendel yen. The chu tamche dendel yen. Dain sunsan tombani. Yeah. Okay. The nature, the so all the nature is of not being truly established. So the only final nature you'll find Buddhism willing to assert is emptiness, and that just means that everything is a collection. That isn't any kind of substance. It's just um, a fact. It's a fact about things, if you will. It's not a a metaphysical thing. It's more like this is red, that's blue. Things are a collection of parts that are named. Um, so, and that's what emptiness is. Um, so Rinpoche said that the 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 idea that science has that there are these atoms, whatever you want to call them, energies, atoms, these collections that come together um, and then form items that form a book, a collection of things, energies uh, with potential, um, but the potential to be something only is once the collection is all there. So you can't say that there's an atom in this that is book's potential because that atom could be made into a car. So the, the, you could say it has the potential to be anything, which reaffirms its emptiness at that point because it takes it binding with other things to become something you name. So Rinpoche is saying that what science is saying um, about these energies, potentials to create form is the same thing Buddhism is essentially saying, that these parts have the potential to create something, but it, they don't inherently have that somethingness until they're in the whole collection with its counterparts or concomitants, if you will. Um, so they aren't, so the middle way autonomy school, which is the second highest school says, so that means that those parts have some bookness in them. But that gets negated by saying they don't because they could be a car if you're looking at it from atoms, if they were put together with other things. So they only have the potential to be something mm -hmm. because they're empty mm -hmm. um, and they, they aren't named as they're just a part at that point. Mm -hmm. um, they are whatever they are. If they're a piece of metal or they're a piece, whatever they are, they're just a part. Mm -hmm. And when dependent origination happens, a bunch of parts came together and then something we called a book is there. So it's, so, it's okay. So thank that, you. Think, so it seems to me that it makes sense to say, at least in my mind, that the concept of substance itself has its own 
notion of inherent existence because it seems to be a um, subsistent, permanent essence that uh, is unchanging. Uh, whereas in the concept of, of things being composed of that which is dependently arisen, things are inherently empty and therefore have no, no solid, no determined uh, stuck nature, no determined permanent nature. But say the first part again. Are you saying that because there is this... It's not to say that there is no substance, but that the concept of substance, at least in our culture maybe, uh, it seems that is, is written with this notion of in inherent existence. Right. Because, because it is believed to be a thingness. It's a something. Yes. You know, but, but, but since, since even atoms or whatever the, subst you know, the quote substance is can be anything, it's not particularly anything. That's, why, that's what you said before, that that's what makes it empty, is that it can be anything. So the concept of substance is itself... Uh, a notion that is is in ignorance because it it, pr it projects this essential nature that, onto that, something that doesn't that does, have it. Yes, it doesn't have an essential nature. But again, we if we if we're talking about atoms or you know what I mean, we're using very specific points when we're 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 talking about comings together and so forth. Just so that we're clear on that, I don't yeah. know about science, so I just want to make sure that's a disclaimer that um, I'm making. But yes, so the ideal, the idea is that things have some sort of, um, matter has some sort of nature. Yeah. Um, but Buddhism says that it only has the nature of being empty. Okay. Um, so that's what Buddhism would say that its right. nature is. Right. Um, now, oh, this is what it is. It's empty because it can be anything. That's tricky because yeah. everything can't be anything. There's because there's valid cognition. This isn't a car. This is a book. Right. Everyone agrees this isn't a car in this room. Right. If you thought it was a car and could get in and drive it, we would have to have you your mind checked because there would be some sort of fault. No, seriously, that's how you you decide whether you it's something is valid cognition. So you have to start whether or not okay, um, something is what you think it is conventionally, and then you can establish its emptiness. Um, so you, you have to start it. So everything can't be anything. Right. But in the case of an atom, it, it could become potentially anything. Potentially anything. Right. But I just want to make sure that emptiness doesn't mean that everything can be anything. Right. Because that's not the case. Because yeah. of, um, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Everything can be anything it can become. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Everything can be anything it be can become. It can become. But then you have to, that's why um, Buddhism and debate makes all of these categories. What's mutually exclusive? What's contradictory? What can, what can this be? What can't it be? Um, so that way, all of that's divided up already in your mind. So you're just basically really investigating instead of trying to figure out what these big words mean. That's why they memorize and come up with all these categories. And it's, it's in their mind just as much as how to say your name is for a monk. These categories and what they mean, they can rattle these off all day and night. The 51 of this and the 26 of that, like it's nothing. And that's what they debate. How many divisions of this are there? And the person will be like, 26. You don't know the 26. What are they? And then they'll spout out the 26. And, and that's uh, what's going on.
um, in their learning system. So when we read this, it's like, why is it so bombastic? Why are they using all these big words to try and say simple things? And there really aren't. They're just referring to information that they're presupposing the reader knows. Go ahead. So this is one thing that uh, the book presupposes I know. Um, the two selves. I've never heard about the two selves and therefore two selflessness. Oh, yes, yes. So yeah. if Rinpoche can explain that. Uh -huh. Thank you. The dame ni. Two dame de la rona. The dits la rona. Okay. Um, so the two divisions of selflessness are selflessness of person and selflessness of phenomena. Um, so anything that is selflessness um, that is not referring to the emptiness or the lack of true self of the I or person, any other emptiness is, self, uh, is selflessness of phenomena. Um, so what is the selflessness of person? Um, uh, the I does not inherently exist. So they would start with the I is not truly existent. It does not inherently exist. Why doesn't it inherently exist? Because it dependently originates. How does this I dependently originate? There are a collection of parts, physical and consciousness, that come together and form a basis of designation, a basis for naming, a base for naming. Um, and it is a suitable base for the naming of I, because there's a, a person sitting here. So we use the case of Jeff. There's some legs and some arms and some head and, and lips and eyes and ears uh, and a consciousness. And it's all here, some, you know, and it comes together and then it forms this thing that we would all who know me agree is called Jeff. And I, my mother called and father named me Jeff and I've been called, so I think I'm Jeff. Um, but there is no Jeff, there is no I that's separate, that inherently exists singularly without that collection of coming together. And, and not just these physical things come to, came together, but also events. My father and mother coming together, uh, sperm and egg coming together, birth happening, all of these are creating these parts that led up to this moment that allow me to sit here and be Jeff. But there isn't some Jeff sitting out there that we can identify that is separate from that collection. So that is the selflessness of person. Selflessness of phenomena is referring to the exact same thing, but about something other than self. So this book does not inherently exist. Why does this book not inherently exist? because it dependently originates. There was a person who cut a tree and someone who made the tree into paper and then ink and then all of these pages were put together, someone translated a book, etc., etc. And then that came together and served as a suitable basis of designation to be called book. And more specifically, the content, Islam and Tsongkhapa's 
work on the Great Treatise, so it's suitable to be called The Great Treatise on the Stage of the Path to Enlightenment by Lama Tsongkhapa, a book called that, because it's those specific parts came together that are suitable to be called that. But there's no book that you can find that's separate from that. And the misunderstanding is that we cling to everything as inherently existing, as this book is singular, as I am singular, without seeing the interdependence that takes place. So selflessness of person is referring to that about the I. Selflessness of phenomena is referring that about everything else that exists. Phenomena necessarily exists. So you can't say like a rabbit with horns or some uh, uh, a sky flower because um, that doesn't exist. So that isn't phenomena according to Buddhism. So um, self, for something to be selfless, it has to exist. This just came to my mind. What about a feeling? Feeling would be... It would be phenomena. It would be phenomena. Sorwa. Chudame kansadame. Sorwa. Sorwa. Selflessness of phenomena. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so the lack of... Oh, so he's making qualifying it. So the lack of true establishment of feeling um, is... The selflessness of phenomena is feeling selflessness of phenomena. So the lack of true establishment, um, so that lack of true establishment of that feeling is selflessness of phenomena related to feelings. Maybe one more question? Okay. Um, All right. Hi. Hey, um, hey. So my first, my question was kind of, uh, I have sort of two questions. One was kind of about like, Thought one and a half is all you get okay. today. So split your second be, question in half. half. Th I'm kidding. Thought <laughs> is, um, is phenomena. Thought is an object, right? Say that one more time. Um, thought. This is just to clarify for yes. myself. Thought is considered an object and can be. And a thought is also considered phenomenon. Yes, thought is an object because you could take the object thought is empty. And thought is phenomena uh, because it is it exists. That which exists is necessarily phenomena. Okay. And the other one is um, like you were, we're talking about substance and bookness. In substance and what? Um, we're talking about books not having bookness. Oh, okay. Yeah. So is it different? Can you talk about bookness in conventional reality? No. But okay. the middle way autonomy, it's interesting you say that, because the second highest school of Buddhism, the middle way autonomy school, believes that conventionally there is some bookness. Okay. Um, but the higher school says no, there's no bookness in any of the parts um, because they could have been made into something else if they weren't made into a book. So they didn't have bookness until they all came together to be able to be called a book. And at that point, it was just a part of it. So even, but, so if it's all come together and it is a book at that moment, can it have bookness? Conventionally, it's a book. If it's conventionally a book, it still But when you say bookness, bookness uh, it, it means if you mean that bookness, bookness is the quality of a book, it's got that. Like, it's got bookness oh, about it because it's, it's a book. It's the quality of a book, but it doesn't have the essence of a book. No, yeah, no phenomena. It depends on what you mean by essence. Um, it works. It, it functions mm. as a book, 
It conventionally exists as a book. So all of those things are correct Buddhist statements. Kon dondan demba dan gunzu demba. Then kon ni chiwa de kon de umaran jupi dawa dan drabudu kon kelen. The garishene, the gunzu demba, the teb, the dets, 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 the teraon drupa ire, kongitsampa. Chikshena gangin sena, the garishene, the nyamdu teb. Gangin sena, the teb dets, dets ire, then a the tsanlo teb, then nyamdu chana, then teb. They run the umaran jupa kel the kelengdu chipa. Then they the garishene the um, the gunzo demba drupa demba madrupa gunzo the garishene the gunzo demba dondan demba garishene the gunzo demba the teb garishene run the drupa yomare gunzo gunzo demba. The 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 the. The Umaran Jupa Tsampa, the Teb, the Gunzu Demba, that's round the Drupa Yure, that's Yure. Round the Drupa Yure, Demba Madruba Yule, Round Jupa. Then a Gunzu Demba, Demba Drupa Yin. Demba Madruba Yin, Round the Drupa Yin, Round Jupa. So the, um, so the middle way so the view that you are asserting is that of the middle way autonomy school. We're not asserting that we're talking about is that thing. There is some conventional uh, bookness there that allows you to call it a book. Um, it it requires the bookness and then a namer to call it a book according to the autonomy school. The consequence school, the higher school, says. It's just a collection of parts that are suitable to be called book, and they only become book when you name it that. There's no bookness until it's named book. Semantics, subtle semantics, but the final view states that that collection itself only is imputed designation. I see. Thank you. Sure. We're here. We got Shamba in the house today. Look at that. Shamba got a teaching. <laughs> in in the, uh, the Bardo of Dying, um, somebody I know has recently died. I'm sorry to hear and that. I, and um, what is it that I could do to help that person through the Bardo? Okay. Uh, when did they pass? Three days ago. Okay. Rimche, the Shapo Sum Lama Controbo Dronson. Controbo in the Tibetan tradition, we do prayers for someone who's passed away for 49 days. And uh, the prayer that you choose to do um, is really up to you. Whatever you are individually most connected to, whatever you um, feel 
is the most appropriate prayer to do for those amounts of days, you would do and imagine that you, the deceased person can hear that prayer and, and imagine that uh, while you're doing that, you're requesting the Buddhas, uh, making aspirations for the Buddhas to help that person in the bardo, because uh, the Buddha is omniscient um, and has great compassion, um, and that you're doing these prayers, making aspirations also, so that you will swiftly become a Buddha uh, and be able to help them and others in the most suitable way. Um, so for the 49 days, you would be making aspirational prayers like that, praying, praying for their um, happiness in their future life, um, but being very specific about that prayer in that you're praying that the Buddhas will help them uh, to achieve that, help them to achieve that higher, that, that um, good result in the future, and, and that your prayers are heard by that person, and may those prayers that they hear in the intermediate state shift their karma to push them into a better state of rebirth. Um, and, and that may those prayers that you're doing push you as quickly as possible to the state of Buddhahood so that if they aren't enlightened yet in their process, you could be of utmost benefit to them. Just, uh, do you bring their image to your mind? Or the, their image or their essence? Because the image would be different, I think. I well, unless you're clair clairvoyant, you wouldn't know what their next life was going to be. And, and in the intermediate state, you take on a light body uh, that can go through walls, and, but it's in the form, shape, of what you're going to be born as. Um, it can change if your karma changes. So you could be in the form of a hell being, for instance, or be born, let's use a, uh, an animal, you're a cow. It's easier for us to think about. You may be in the intermediate state in the shape of a cow um, because you're going, your karma, uh, at your time of death was, was most strong to connect to that kind of rebirth. But while you're in the intermediate state, something can shift in your karma. You still have consciousness. You're still collecting karma in the intermediate state. You're still thinking. You're still behaving. You just have a different kind of body. You, you aren't thinking, I'm Jeff any longer, but you're still thinking you're someone with whatever this light body you're flying around in is. Um, so say you were going to be born as a cow and you're in a cow form, but you suddenly in that state start to think of something virtuous that connects you to a human rebirth somehow. You can actually change in the intermediate state into a human form and be, you have your entire <laughs> process shifted to a different realm be heading towards a different realm because you're still under the influence of karma in the intermediate state. So back to the original question, are you thinking of the person's image or their essence? Um, I don't know, so now what we know about what their future life, what they would look like in the intermediate state, we can't really be certain of what they would look like. Rimache, ngatsu the kandun chena, the shiken, the bardo, the me chipa yom Jeff Sar. Nga shena bardo drona Jeff Sar. Then the ngats Jeff Sanodana, the Jeff Sar, Jeff Mepats Chason. 
So, and if you're making prayers to the deities, then the deities will help your friends. So, what I'm trying to establish is... Um, um, I just lost my, my place. Give me one second for me to regroup my mind here. Um, your friend, you're thinking. So Rinpoche said that the image that you have of the person it no longer exists. That, so when the person dies and this life, that, the karma that has created Jeff no longer has the potency to create Jeff any longer. Jeff dies, Jeff's image is no longer. So when Jeff's consciousness leaves and goes to the intermediate state, um, it's no longer Jeff's form. It's, no, it's over. It, it, as soon as the death takes place, the elements dissolve and the consciousness leaves the body, that body was merely the aggregates of that lifetime. There was the vehicle that the consciousness rested in and doesn't have anything to do with the consciousness any longer. So Rinpoche said, but the person that you're praying for, you know as that person. So you do, I said, is it helpful to have their picture even though that picture is of something that doesn't even exist anymore? And he said, that's how you remember them and relate to them and that is in their string stream of rebirths. So even though that no longer exists as that incarnation, it, is, it, it does exist in a continuum of rebirths. So an omniscient being could say, yeah, in life number 697 million, it was Jeff. He was Jeff, and he did this and that and the other thing, and then he lived to be X amount of years old, so that memory, that's how karma gets to be stored. So the lives, the imprints are still there. So even though the incarnation is no longer existent, there's a relationship to that person still that you can connect to. So in answering your question, do you think of the person or their essence? I wouldn't know what essence would look like. Um, and usually when I try to think of a person, I immediately think of them. You know, so I, I don't know. I wouldn't know how to... If you have a way of doing that that makes you think of that person, though, their essence, it would be the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is, is there a particular uh, prayer that Rinpoche could give me? That he said he wants you to tick, pick one that you feel most connected to. Because just if you don't, aren't connected karmically yeah. to the prayer, it's not as powerful for you or the other person necessarily. 
all this weird subtleties of karma that go on. Okay? Yeah, uh, sure. Yes, yes. Oh. When you set your intention and you pray uh, or say mantras for that person, yes, would you wouldn't you would you establish that name? Yes, because that's you, the only that's way you can establish who connection. you're praying for. Yeah, okay. It's a way to name them as what yes. that. It's the only name you have for that consciousness. Yeah. Okay. I just but you know, if you knew that. its previous life's name, it would be just as appropriate to mm -hmm. pray. You know what I mean? If yeah. somehow you knew that. Like before that life, they were, you know, I don't know. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Uh, I just have a quick question. Yeah. Um, where is the source of uh, prayers that one could draw from? Uh, where is the source of yeah. our prayer book? Yeah, or prayer book. Would uh, that be sufficient? Um, yeah. Or, or um, Rinpoche was saying that he knows that um, uh, people in here already do prayers already have prayers that they do. Mm -hmm. So those would be the prayers that we'd use. But if you have no prayers that you do, say you're just here for the first time and you don't mm -hmm. aren't study Buddhism and you have our prayer book has all of the prayers Rinpoche suggests in oh, it. Oh, okay, good. And the pra our prayer book is online too. So you can go to our website and access, for anyone who's watching, you can access all the prayers in our prayer book um, online as well. All right. Thank you. That was a good point of reference, though. I forgot they're online. Okay, concluding mandala offering and dedication prayer. Thank you, everybody. Tuchena Rimache Chiran Zupa Gom. The Lam Rim Chemo got to do it. How many pages do we have left of the Lam Rim Chemo? Uh, 30? Sumju, Sumju, Sumju. Mo. Sumju Sungje Moa then it's off. Shugu. How many? Thirty. Thirty. Shugu Sumju. Then it's off. Yes. I believe yes. So Shugu Sumju. Then it's off. Which one? Oh, did we? We did the the Tantra? We did the prologue, didn't we? I thought we did anyway. Because the summary and conclusion is the Tantra teaching. So we did the Tantra. Maybe we did, though. Maybe he referenced it. Anyway, we're going to do it again. Um, but yeah, that's really amazing that we have made it through the Lamrim Chemo, but not just gone through it in in a, you know, 30 days or something. We went through it over a decade, and that's amazing. Not so low Jew, more. Hey, Lama Tsongkhapa, do. Then the Tanda, the Moa, Yomare, the Shugu, the Chikshena, the Becha, Jew, Jew Ni Gu. Gangin Sena, the Songchuna, Ngapcha, Yere. Ngapcha, 500. Songchuna, Yere. Then Chikshena Becha Ju Juni Gu. The Delpa. Then the Jiantro Dang Gonchuson Dang Gonchuson the Yunten. The Gosun Tu Yunten. The Chikshena Becha Chi. 
Gangasana chu that seek delpa danson. Seek kanga delpa tsik 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 tsik. The kanga the delpa danson. Shada selpodu rimbache. The gonchu sum shada selpodu. That I was saying that the section on the three jewels and the excellent qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and the enlightened activities, that he was so thorough during those sections, and he did word commentaries sometimes, where he would go over the intended meaning of each word. Um, so it's really beautiful. I was saying that just the refuge section would take a book. If you look at it um, on the basis of why you go for refuge, et cetera, et cetera, that would take a whole book for sure to go through. So it's amazing that we've, we've gotten such a detailed... There's never been, unless it was in someone's room alone, uh, and we don't know about it, um, this long of a commentary since the book was written, ever given on it. So uh, this is a historical thing that's taking place here. Um, it's pretty amazing to be part of it. All right, concluding mandala offering and dedication prayer. And I just want to thank everybody who makes this possible, and you all know who you are. <clears throat> Okay. Ah. The fundamental ground is scented with incense and strewn with flowers, adorned with Mount Meru, the four continents, the sun and the moon. I imagine this as a Buddha land and offer it. May all sentient beings enjoy this pure realm. I dedicate whatever virtues I have collected for the benefit of the teachings and of all sentient beings, and in particular for the essential teachings of Venerable Lozandrapa to shine forever. I send forth this jeweled mandala to you, precious Guru. I dedicate all this virtue to emulate the knowledge of the hero Manjushri and likewise Samantabhadra as well. With whatever dedication is praised as supreme by all the conquerors who traverse the three times, I also dedicate all my roots of virtue for the sake of auspicious deeds. In that pure land surrounded by snowy mountains, you are the source of all benefit and happiness. All-powerful Avogateshvara Tenzin Jatso, may you stay until samsara's end. I pray for the long life of the precious Kensar Wandok, upholder of scriptural and realizational doctrines, the spiritual friend who trained extensively in the five great philosophical texts with exceptional wisdom and perseverance.